You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm the National Director of the Australian Writers' Centre, and I'm here with my fellow journalist slash author slash blogger slash Australian Writers' Centre presenter, Alison Tate. How are you, Alison? I'm such a slashy. I can't believe it. I've actually made it into Slashyville, and I've been waiting for that my whole life. I'm extremely well. I'm, um, I have children on school holidays, so I'm not particularly productive at the moment, but I'm, I'm having a lovely time. And uh, what have you been up to apart from having children on school holidays? Well, unfortunately, when you have children on school holidays, that's pretty much what you do. (laughs) (laughs) There's not a lot of time for much else. But I am managing to fit in a little bit of editing work on on book two of my series. And and that's pretty much what I'm doing. And I'm thinking a lot. That helps, doesn't it? I'm thinking a lot. How do you keep your kids occupied while you're trying to write? Well, you don't. Um, I used I used to be able to. Like when they were younger, it was actually easier. People say to me, "Oh, it must have been so difficult with two small children." And but in some ways, it's actually easier because they're a lot more predictable. And you know, they will have a sleep occasionally, and they do that sort of stuff. And if you put them in front of a DVD, they'll stay there. Mm. But um, but now they don't, and they bicker constantly. So there's not a lot of actual. Um, yeah, daytime hours are gone. So I, I I still work a lot at night. Like that's always been my my main thing as a working writing mum is uh, my insomnia has really been a great asset to me at this point in my life. Um, but the, uh, yeah, no, I've given up really trying to get much done during the actual day during the holidays, but it's okay because, you know, I, I honestly think that a lot of writing work goes on in your head. Mm. So I, I'm able to zone out a lot while they bicker and that works really well for all of us. <laughs> well, yeah, I've well. got five furry children and unfortunately yes. I can't pop them in front of the DVD, but no. as, as we're recording this podcast, my little dog Rambo is sitting on my lap. So you, you may hear a peep or two from him. Uh, but apart That's... from that, um, school holidays don't really impact me. Um, no. So I have been busy. What have I been doing? We're actually recruiting at the Australian Writers' Centre. So we've got a couple of positions be- going because we're um, uh, ever expanding and ever growing. So if anyone who's interested in being an operations manager or a sub-editor slash content manager. Yes. Uh, slashy. Join yeah, my exactly, team. Exactly. Another slashy <laughs> job. Um, they can have a look at writerscentre.com.au you slash careers. Um, so uh, it's been interesting just uh, going through all the applications. So Fantastic. Um, yeah. It's a great team. Everyone should just try and get involved, I think. Oh, I'm glad you said that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I'm in terms of it. news in the writing world this week, I've, uh, I've come across a, um, an 
app, and it's interesting because it's a uh, it, it's a team of editorial you know writers and people who are avid readers who actually select two novels every month. Um, one is a contemporary work, one is a classic, and this app is designed to help people who aren't that into reading to to read in bite sized chunks. So they serialize the novels into short lengths, which can be read on at, at fifteen or twenty minutes, like on a commute. So if you're on the train, you can finish a chunk of Jane Austen or a chunk of whatever, exactly kind of timed for your for a typical commute. And mm-hmm. um, so I don't know whether or not that will, you know, uh, whether or not it'll fly, whether or not it'll uh, work, but um, their aim is to help people discover great fiction and subscribers decide when they want each installment delivered to their mobile. So you can say, oh, well, my commute's at 8.30 or whatever. And that's when it'll appear. So do you think that's going to work? Do you think, you know, just reading in 15 to 20 minute chunks is actually going to work? Because I tend to like to sit down and devour a book over quite a long period. Well, I don't know. I find it an interesting concept. I don't really understand why you wouldn't just get an ebook and, um, you know, read as many pages as you can while you're on the train and then get off the train. I mean, I don't, I don't really get that. But, um, I guess if you're, if, if you're looking for curated content, if you want someone else to choose stuff for you, I think a lot of people find it really, really hard to, to pick a book these days. There's so many to choose from. And yeah. I know that when I'm looking for something, like sometimes I'll be here late at night and I'll be wanting something to read and, I don't have anything at hand, so I'll be, you know, prowling around looking for an ebook. And geez, I find it hard sometimes. Like, it's mm. if if my current, you know, if my current list of favorite authors doesn't have anything in new, then it's like, oh, where do I go here? And I'm sort of, fa- I found myself the other day, um, branching, you know, ever further into Amazon, searching for something the other day. And it is really hard. I do understand this. What people talk about with discoverability, it is extremely difficult. Geez, your book blurb has to work hard now. Yeah. It has to work really hard. So maybe this works because someone else is choosing it for you. But like also, having a stylist for your clothing. Exactly, a book stylist. A book but, stylist, I like that. Also, I think that no doubt being an app, there's some level of gamification on it. So if you read an X amount, you get, a, you'll probably get a point oh, or a badge picks? or something like that. And then after you've read the whole book, you probably get a little cheering figure saying, go, Alison, you oh, rock. a star, a gold star. Imagine, Just, how many, imagine how many gold stars I could get if reading was like that. Exactly. Being you know, a fast reader like I am. Man, maybe, I would be like, I should, should download be, the app. Oh, maybe I should. I could be a champion. Mm. Finally, at something. The other interesting thing that has come up this week is a website I've discovered called beaconreader.com slash pay me please. We'll put the link in the show notes because it's pay hyphen me hyphen please. And ah. it's fascinating because it basically it says, just? yeah, when publishers don't pay up, let the world know. So it's a name and shame site for journalists wow. and writers. And it says media organizations are often bad at paying journalists for the work they do. That's not fair to the people who bring you your news. So a freelancer called Iona Craig has had enough and she's joined up with B to create this site as a way to help. And if you've been stiffed on a job, you should share your details. So there's all sorts of media outlets. Unfortunately, because it's alphabetical, the poor media outlets beginning with A and B. Oh, they're hammered, aren't they? Goodness me. Are right at the top. But they range from, you know, Borneo Magazine to BBC to um, Canadian Television. Uh, As you can see, I'm reading, you know, the A, B and Cs to Esquire. So it's all there, including the name in most cases of the freelancer, what the 
piece of work is about and the total amount owed to the freelancer. There's also an added column, which you know, is filled in later by the freelancer as whether the dispute has been settled or what amount they were finally paid. So um, it's kind of fascinating that this name and shame site is interesting. Has, yeah. Do you, think- do you know what else is interesting about it? I'm scro- scrolling through mm. here and there's, I can't see any Australian publications on there unless it's, unless Australian freelancers simply haven't discovered it yet and haven't put anything up there, but I'm not, I'm not seeing any any Australian mags yet, but it's just been yet. circulated. Oh, there is one here. Postcards magazine um, commissioned assignment. Three hundred dollars was the oh. disputed amount, but the, in the end, the uh, the freelancer got five hundred and forty three. So obviously that worked out okay. Oh um, dear! But I have no doubt there will we'll see more Australian publications listed here. Do you think this is right? Do you think this should happen? Oh, look, I think it's a, it's a clearly a last resort thing. It's obviously people who are having a great deal of difficulty. Um, I mean, I have to say I have rarely found – in 20-odd years of freelancing, I, I have rarely found myself in this situation of having to chase payment. Yep. And the only time that I can remember having to do it was with a magazine that was really on its last legs. It was, yeah. you know, on the way out. And – um, they were obviously like just holding off paying everybody in the whole world. Mm. But I did actually eventually get my money. I think it took six months or something, you know, and I, and I think it was all of about, you know, $400. Um, but, I, yeah, look, I think it's it, it can be extremely frustrating as a freelancer because, you know, often you have to wait a long time for your money anyway. Like a lot of, a lot of um, publishing companies will be on a six-week to 12-week payment cycle yep. as it is um, and where you can really get stiffed is if they, if it's not pay on submission but pay on publication mm. because if they then hold your article for a year, you don't get paid until the story appears in print yep. and that, that I find, you know, can be, can be difficult but I have to say that most of, I mean, I work mostly for regulars mm. and they pay regularly so yep. I don't have that problem but I can see um, how frustrating it can be for freelancers who, you know, like it's it's hard work out there on the cold face, you know. Yeah. And if, if, you know, they're not sitting in an office and they've, they've, do, they've not got that weekly pay- paycheck and if somebody doesn't come up with the $500, that can leave a massive hole in their finances. So is it right? I don't know. I mean, well, what do you think? I agree with you in that it's got to be a last resort. I think you need to try all the other avenues first. And yeah. I think one of the biggest mistakes that freelancers make when they're chasing payment is they're actually chasing the wrong person within the organisation. Yeah. And potentially the editor has actually already, or whoever it is they've been dealing with in editorial, has already approved the invoice and passed it along to the next chain, you know, step in the process. Um, and, and the editor actually can't do anything more about it. Yeah. So you need to find out who's the next person you need to contact and make sure you're chasing the right person because otherwise you're just going to be annoying the person who actually can't do anything about it anyway. Well, I, I do agree with that too, but I also think to a degree that the editors, um, you know, the editors commission the job and so there needs to be some follow-up. I mean, there must be I – mean, they, they can at least make a phone call to say, where's the payment? Have you got the invoice? Because half the time what you get is that you've put the invoice in, it's gone through, it's been lost somewhere in the system. And unless the editor makes that call to say, 
have you got the invoice? They don't even know that they didn't get the invoice. Of course. And, you know, so three months later you're resubmitting an invoice because nobody knows where it is. So mm. I do think there needs to be some responsibility from the editor's perspective as well to do – well, if not the editor, then whoever it is you're dealing with, the features editor or whoever it is that commissioned your story, um, there has to be some help in-house for you because otherwise you can be like a fly bashing against the screen, you know, trying <laughs> to get in and no, and everyone's ignoring you just going, you're annoying. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Anyway, that's my thought. My tip is to find the right person and don't just be the fly bashing against the screen. <laughs> be the fly that bashes through the screen. Yes. Because, you know, admittedly in my 20 years or so, I've, I've really come across this. But if I have um, come across situations of late payment, um, it, I always find that the squeaky wheel is the one that gets the oil. And if you call but be absolutely polite and lovely. Absolutely on a very regular basis, yeah. they just don't want you to call anymore. No, that's right. And and that and I think that that's the key too. You know, tone is everything. Mm-hmm. If you start getting grumpy and demanding and carrying on, particularly if you start doing that early, um, you just make no friends and then there's no one on your side to help. Mm-hmm. And that that's not going to, you know, further your cause in any way, shape or form. And for, now for something completely different, I was um, happy to hear that Donna Tart has won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction for her book, The Goldfinch. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I haven't actually even bought it yet, but that's next on my list when next time I visit the uh, local bookstore. And she's won $10,000 for winning in the category, uh, which honours American writers about writing about American life. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm interested. Have you read The Goldfinch? Have you read other Donna Tart books? I've read the – obviously, I read The Secret History oh, in the 90s. Oh, everyone's Which I – and absolutely loved it at loved the time. It. The second one I didn't even – I don't think I even looked at, Little mm-hmm. Friend, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, see, I, that's how much interest I had in it. I don't even know the name of it. This one, I, I did buy it. I bought it in January. It's now April. I, I read 50 pages in January and then I put it down and I haven't picked it up again. And the only reason I haven't picked it up, I'm pretty sure, I've been thinking about this, is the size of it oh, because yeah. it is. it looks like something that I need to invest a really good solid amount of my time in and mm. I just have not had that time to do it. And so therefore I haven't even, you know, picked it up again. And I asked about it in the Pink Fibre Book Club this week. I said, you know, have you read it? Do you love it? And I had, um, there were a couple of people that had read it, loved it, deep as it is easy to read, eccentric yet wise, you know, adored it, et cetera, et cetera. And then a third of the people were like, I'm intimidated by the size. I might <laughs> save it for when I've got five weeks off, you know, that kind of stuff. And then a very, very small percentage of people hated it and couldn't work out why it won the prize. Wow. So that was probably out of t- – I had about 20, 21 responses to that. And so it was an interesting eye-opening um, little look at it too. And uh, and the luminaries came up at, at the same time because, of course, it came out at about the same time. It is also a doorstopper of a book. Yeah, I also bought it in January, and I haven't even opened it yet. <laughs> so I'm not doing well on the big book. Well, there's certainly front. been a lot of hype on uh, the Goldfinch, and I saw a comment from someone on Facebook saying, "I have no idea what this book is about, but I've read all of the hype and I bought it. It's got a nice cover. Is it about birds?" Oh dear. <laughs> well, you know what? I think it's really interesting. I was thinking about this the other day. I think a lot of people buy books that they never read oh, yeah. as well. You know, like they will buy the book of the moment, like there I am with my two 
I could, here I am, I'm an example. And um, I have not as yet even cracked the cover. But I have it. I own it. So therefore, does that make me, you know, I'm all over it. I'm on trend. But I haven't actually read it yet. <laughs> I know. There are so many bookcases that fit that description. Um, but what's happening with, uh, what have you found on the web this week? Well, I read a beautiful article and I, I really wanted to share this as widely as possible. I read a beautiful, beautiful article by Jenny Diskey. She's a UK writer and she was a wayward teen and Doris Lessing, who of course is the, you know, world famous writer, took her in and, um, she wrote this article called When Doris Lessing Rescued Me. And it's a really, really interesting story about, it's a fantastic little article about what it means to be a writer. So she became a writer, obviously. So did Doris Lessing teach her to write? This would be the question you'd have to ask. What Doris Lessing taught her is how to be a writer. And the way that Doris Lessing went about it was she got up every single day, she sat in her study with the door closed, said, be quiet, I'm working. And that's what she did every day. She wrote every day. And she talked about how she goes about it, that writing was the priority, that if you were going to interrupt her, it had to be absolutely, you know, earth shattering. And it was dealt with as quickly as possible to get back. And she was like a hermit while she was writing. And then once it was off, once it went off to her agent, she became immensely convivial for a few weeks. She'd go out and she'd do and she'd see and she'd whatever. And then she'd have another idea and that'd be it. She'd get on with it. And that's what wow. she did. So it's, it was, it was work that she had to do to earn a living yep. to be a writer. And it wasn't writing. And she, she was someone who I think, you know, fits in with that, that article we were talking about a few weeks ago about you can't sit around waiting for the muse. Yep. She was. Um, she had no patience with the notion of waiting for inspiration and there was no such thing as writer's block mm. as far as Doris was concerned. And these are the things that she taught Jenny Diskey. And I, I really think it's worth reading because it's a beautifully written little piece and it really, you know, the focus is the writing and that's the point of the whole thing. And I think that if you can think about that as a writer, I think you just get a lot more done. Do you ever have writer's block? No, not really. I'm not, I'm not a writer's block person. I think because I'm always working on so many different things, if I'm struggling with a, you know, if, if I'm, I've reached points in, in stories and things like that where I just think, oh, what have I done? I've written myself into a hole here. My character's, you know, literally in a hole and I can't get him out and why did I put him there in the first place? And I do all that sort of stuff. But if I'm doing that, then I'll, I'll, I'll go and do something else. I'll write a blog post or I'll work on a feature article. I had to write a, you know, in the midst of my character being in a hole a few weeks ago, I had to write a story about weddings. So, you know, I was, I was sort of fretting over this, whole situation that I had <laughs> and um and I'm talking to people on the on the phone about their simple and elegant weddings everybody's weddings are simple and elegant I just want you to know that they all are doesn't matter what you look at think when you look at the pictures they're all simple and elegant but um yeah so like I think variety is really important when it comes to writer's block I think because once you've gone off and written about weddings for a while you can come back to your whole situation with a f whole fresh mind it's really good mm -hmm. what about you do you have it 
No, I don't really. I think writer's block is, um, if I was being harsh, I would say it was another word for procrastination. Um, it's also a little bit of a luxury. I think that the difference is that when you do write about other things, like multiple, you know, genres, you can always turn to another genre yeah. and, um, and do that and kind of like let it all flow. But if you decide that you're only going to write one kind of style, one kind of thing, uh, it's a lot more limiting for you. And that's why I do encourage writers to actually try other styles because it just makes them a better writer as well. It is hard though too now for writers in the sense that often um, publishers, you know, if you write something that people love um, and it goes out there, then what they want from you is more of that. Yeah. And I think that that's where some writers have difficulties in the sense that they feel like they've written themselves into a brand. And it may be that they want to do something completely different now, mm. but, but they're in a brand situation. But my advice with that, when I've, I've spoken to several friends of mine who've had that situation, is you can always write something under a different name or yep. you can try a different, um, Try a different genre, like try 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 YA or try you know. Th- there are different things that you can do. You don't necessarily have to always be writing novels for adults that have to be the same. I, d- I just think it's really important to, and as you say, try nonfiction. Try mm. try something else and see what that unlocks. Well, w- one person who doesn't think that uh, you know it's uh, that probably doesn't get writer's block and who doesn't think that it's actually as hard as people say is um, we mentioned him a few weeks ago, Johnny B. Truant. Um, He's got a new sort of project called Fiction Unboxed and we'll put the link in the show notes, but it says here, change the world with a story. Watch us. So him and his partner, his um, writing partner, Sean, um, watch us write a book live in 30 days. Um, it starts on the 22nd of April and basically, you know, it says, watch us write a book live in 30 days. We don't have a single character, name, or even a genre. You can help us choose it all. And so it's kind of kind of like a crowdsourced novel, mm-hmm. um, except they're going to do the writing, but they're going to let watch, they're going to let everyone watch them, um, pen it, edit it, everything. And, um, and uh, we'll, we'll put the link out there for people who actually want to do that. But I believe it's a Kickstarter project as well. Really? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, it says, see everything we do, uh, see everything we do right, along with every mistake, dropped ball and off-color joke. We're slightly scared, totally excited, and right now waiting for you. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. So I'm going to watch it for sure. Not, Are not, you? Not the whole 30 days. I'm going to dip in and out when I, instead of watching cat videos on YouTube, I might have a look at this. Okay. I can't think of anything more boring than watching someone write a book. (laughs) I honest to God can't. I'm thinking about myself sitting here writing a book and I'm thinking about what that must look like. And I can tell you that on the inside of my head, it looks amazing. There is so much going on. From the outside, it is like a person staring transfixed at a, at a screen and typing at a million miles an hour. Now, <laughs> where is the TV in that? Yeah, it's, it's no real Housewives of Melbourne, is it? <laughs> no. It's, I, honestly, I, it's the reason why, you know, you're never going to see the voice for writers because it's just not... <laughs> 
it's it's not a shared to me it is not a sharing kind of activity it really is so internal everything about it is so internal <laughs> that i can't imagine i mean i guess if you're working with a co-author but i've worked with a co-author before and like it was pretty funny when we were having some conversations about it but for the rest of the time we were sitting there writing it's really boring well who knows it might be a big flop so we'll wait and see we'll report All right, well back. you can report back because you know i'm not going there <laughs> So people often ask us what some good writing books are. What is your suggestion, Alison? Well, I'm going to bring up an oldie but a goodie here because, and again, it's a, honestly, the Pink Fibro Book Club, I'm telling you, there is so much good stuff going on in there. There was, um, we had a, we've got a few younger members and somebody had given one of these younger members an extract from the writing book by Mm. Kate Grenville. And she had asked our group, um, whether or not it was worth buying the whole book because she was quite interested in what she had read. And so the responses came thick and fast because, of course, I, I've had that book. Um, I reckon I've got that had that book on my shelf for about 20 years. I remember reading it um, oh years and years ago. It is an amazing book for beginners. It is a fantastic book. It's an Australian book, which is also a lot of the examples are Australian, which is really unusual. Mm. So, um, you know, for Australian writers, it's um, it's fantastic because you'll get to see. She shows you, she shows you, how, she she gives you advice and then she shows you how it's done and she shows you her own examples and she also shows you other people's. And it was humongously well recommended by everybody else in the in the book club group as a fantastic book for beginners. And I think sometimes we're so busy searching for new stuff all the time that we forget that there are some classics out there. Yeah. And I really think that the that, that particular book, the writing book by Kate Grenville, is definitely worth a look if you are sort of, you know, looking at taking your fiction further. Absolutely. It was one of the first, certainly one of the first books that I, first, first writing books I owned from many, many years ago. Yes. Speaking of writers, well, which we always do, um, who's our writer in residence this week? Our writer in residence this week is Jennifer Smart. She's a debut author of a book called The Wardrobe Girl. And it's, um, it's about sort of being on the set of a soapy. And Jennifer you know, coincidentally, (laughs) did some work with Home and Away for many years. And so this is very much a case of write what you know. Um, But my questions for Jennifer were very much along the lines of, well, it's all very well to write what you know, but how do you make sure that it's fiction? So it was quite an interesting um, interview. And of course, the interest, the other interesting fact is that Jennifer is a graduate of the Australian Writers' Centre and oh. she's done a few courses with us and she did the um, How to Write a Chick Lit novel, uh, which, you know, no doubt played a part in, um, in, no in writing this book. So <laughs> take it away, Jennifer. And hello to Jennifer Smart, debut author of The Wardrobe Girl, published through Random House. Jennifer worked in film and television for many years, including five years on the Australian soap Home and Away, which makes her the perfect person to write a debut novel set on the set of an Australian soap, and it offers a behind-the-scenes look at the world of television production. So welcome, Jennifer. Hello, Alison. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, anytime. We love writers. We lo- we'd have them over all the time <laughs> if we could. <laughs> So let's talk about The Wardrobe Girl. Was this a case of, you know, there's that old maxim in writing fiction, write what you know. And is that what you kind of had in your head when you sat down to write this book? Yes, um, that was one of the things I had in my head, definitely. Um, The other thing was 
having worked so long in the industry, I just, there's a story here. There's a definitely a story here. So, um, yeah, a bit of both. Okay. So you didn't actually, did you work as a writer in film and television? Right at the very end of my um, time in TV, I did. Um, I wrote two scripts for Home and Away and then left to have um, my uh, youngest daughter. So that, that kind of nipped that one in the bud. But um, up until then, I had a job called director's assistant on TV in film credits. It's called continuity or script supervisor. Okay. So is this the first novel that you've ever attempted? No, it's not the first novel I've ever attempted. I did try one um, before I started this one, but it was um, much darker and I decided it it just was never going to see the light of day. Okay. Was that a similar subject matter or was that a completely different thing? No, it was completely different and, yeah, so it was more of a romance gone wrong. (laughs) (laughs) We love that. I love a good romance going wrong. All right, so let's talk about this book then, The Wardrobe Girl. How much of your real experience is in this book? Because you've gone down the road of, you know, fictionalising a world that you're very familiar with. Yeah, that's right. Um, The actual details of of the work process are all real. Um, And people that, you know, colleagues of mine from Home and Away have said, oh, it's so true to life. Um, But in terms of the the people and the characters, they're all fiction. There's not anybody who would be able to put their hand up and say, that's me. So no one's come up to you at any point and said, you wrote about me. No, no, <laughs> no. Do, do you think people look for themselves, though? Do you think that they're all reading it, looking for themselves? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. For so the people, if not themselves, they're definitely, you know, they're yeah. hoping that they, they might, you know, see, you know, somebody who is a particularly difficult director or, you know. So, uh, so are any of the incidents that occur? Is that yes. all? Yeah, there's a couple of incidents that occurred that, that, would mm, exaggerated. Okay, all right. The kernel is there, but I kind of embellished them and made them slightly funnier than they were at the time. Okay, <laughs> slightly funnier. Okay, so um, how difficult was it then to ensure that it was fiction, that these characters were fictional, and that they that they didn't, you know, vaguely resemble anybody in real life? Was that hard? No, it wasn't actually, because you know I made a very conscious decision right from the start um, that I didn't want anybody to come to me and, and you know, say, you know, you've written something about me, it's really nasty or, or anything like that. Um, I, I wanted it to be a fun, entertaining book and so I couldn't go down the path of including people, no matter what I thought of them personally or even if I thought they'd be a great character. Um, I, I just didn't want to do that. Um, and once I got Tess, the protagonist, um, once I heard her voice and got her happening, it, everything else just kind of spun out around her and, um, and I needed characters to bounce off her. So, it, it, you know, there's, there's bits of different people from all over the place, but okay. there's, yeah. No one in particular. No one in particular. What about how much, you know, how much of you is in Tess? Oh, 
oh, look, I don't think that we're very much alike at all. Um, but uh, I don't know. Um, I think we have a, a slightly similar worldview in some ways, um, but you no, know, I mean she's she's tall and glamorous, and I'm small. <laughs> all right, well that makes all the difference. <laughs> I guess it does change how you approach life, doesn't it? Oh, tall and does. glamorous. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, what made you decide when you sort of even when you attempted your first darker? you know, romance gone wrong. Um, yeah. What made you decide to write a novel? Like why did you go, why did you sit down and one day think, you know what, I'm going to write a novel? Do you know why? Because I thought it would be easier and more interesting than writing a script. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted, to, I wanted to, to write and I thought, oh, I'd really like to, you know, first of all I started doing script writing courses, but uh, script writing is so incredibly structured and it's actually really quite difficult because you just have dialogue to rely on. You don't have, you can't explore those wonderful inner ramblings of, of somebody's brain and how that all works. So I found it a little frustrating um, and just thought maybe I should actually try writing a novel. Maybe that's where I'm more suited. So, Do you think that the... Do you think that the um, courses and the kind of experience that you've had in script writing um, helped, though, as far as, you know, structuring your novel? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I, yeah, I, certainly in terms of understanding things, just really basic things like um, um, in late, out early with scenes, that every scene has a beginning, a middle and an end, Um with dialogue that it's not just conversation it it has to reveal you know real reveal the character's motivation or something about their personality moving the plot along you, you don't just go gee it's a nice day i'm really happy that we're meeting in the park kind of yeah. conversation <laughs> that sort of thing um and you just you leave it unless you need them all the things like the hellos how are you's the goodbyes see you tomorrow's you just don't use them you don't need them um you know they're they're boring and they add nothing um i also had a, a quite a good understanding of of transitioning so from you know chapter to chapter or scene to scene to to try you know to get the reader to want to move on with you and um so i guess not quite a cliffhanger but just opening a door so that they want to step through it and and continue reading rather than um, put the book down or or throw it against a wall or you know <laughs> yeah whatever <laughs> so um what surprised you most about the process of you know completing a novel oh um just the sheer amount of rewriting and um, yeah, I just wasn't prepared for how much rewriting I was going to do. Um, and I had 47 different versions of my draft. Um, by 47? Mm, that's not full rewrites, but that's enough changes yeah, wow. to, to make me go, okay. Was well, that before you, should, was that 47 drafts in total or 47 before you sent it to an agent or to a... It was 47 before I sent it to the agent. Okay. Mm, but it did mean that, um, like, my the, the editing process um, wasn't too bad when I got into Yeah. Got okay. into You'd done a lot of the work already. Yeah, I had. So how long did it take you to write your 47 drafts? <laughs> Just out of interest. <laughs> 
Oh, about, oh, look, probably about five years. But I'd say about two years of that was serious. So it took me a long time to actually go, oh, maybe I can do this. Maybe other people want to read it. Um, You know, it's easy to sit in your own little world and say you're writing a book. Um, It's another thing to then go, but I actually want this book published and taking it, you know, doing the the next steps that you need to do for that. So, uh, yeah, I I guess seriously about two years. Okay. So what was its journey to publication from the 47th draft onwards? Like where did you send it to (laughs) a lot of agents or did you have someone in mind or what what did you do? No, I was actually, I have to say, very blessed with my route to publishing. Um, I went uh, two years ago, I went on a writing retreat to Luang Prabang in um, Laos. And I've done a lot of my writing work with um, uh, Jan Cornell, who um, has her own website called The Writer's Journey. And um, and she had this writer's retreat. So I went there with her. And I met a woman called Deb Nolan, who writes under the name of A.D. Scott. And I think she was up to about her fourth book with Simon & Schuster um, when I met her. And she just really liked um, The Wardrobe Girl and um, just kind of took me under her wing. And oh. um, she said, I'm going to start talking to my agent, Sheila Drummond, about you and your manuscript. And I was like, oh, okay, thank you. You know, thinking everybody says that when they meet someone. <laughs> No. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> and then, you know, I get back home and she actually lives in Vietnam and um, I just started getting these very – she's a very forthright Scottish woman and I started getting these very forthright Scottish emails, you know. How how come it hasn't finished? You haven't finished. Where is the finished manuscript? And I've spoken to Sheila about you and she's very interested. And every time I got one of her emails – kind of a little part of me just kind of curled up in the corner going, oh, my God, it's, it's, she's serious. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so eventually I reached a point where I thought, look, I just don't think I can do any more with this. You know, it probably needs a bit more tweaking, but I need somebody else to, to tell me what to do now. And um, um, sent her an email very coyly and like her forthrightness saying, oh, I think it might be ready. And she just emailed me back straight away and said, well, I don't need it. Just send it straight to Sheila. So um, I emailed Sheila Drummond and said, do you want the first two chapters and a synopsis? And she said, no, let's just read the whole thing. And um, 10 days later, she phoned me. We had a quite a long conversation she raised things that were of concern I guess for her taking on a new writer um you know the the fact that I you know I do have still have a a young daughter um so I have three I've got two who are adults and a a little seven-year-old um so that was of concern because why was that of concern um, because sometimes, as she said, family things get in the way of deadlines right. and, you know, it, it happens. So, um, you know, you, you're going to be able to meet these deadlines. You know, she, that was something that she was very concerned about. Right. Um, do you actually know what you're getting yourself in for? 
um, is, you know, is this really what you want to do? And she said, I think your book will sell, but I need to be clear of, of who I'm taking on and, and that you kind of have some understanding as well. So she was very good, you know, straightforward. So very clear on the realities of very what, what you were getting into basically. Yes. Yeah. Which did that surprise you? Were you did you think you know you did you think you knew? No, look, no, I was and I have always been the the every step of the way I've been, you know, hands up, look, I have no idea what I'm doing. Okay. Yeah. I'm completely naive about this whole process. If you tell me this is the right way to go, I'm going to trust you. Right. So she said by the end of this phone call, she said, look, I'm, I, I'm interested in taking you on. I'm not too sure about your first chapter. Can you rewrite the first four pages tonight and get it to me first thing in the morning? Right. There's your first test. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, yeah, okay, fine. Put the phone down and then, yes, realized straight away, I know what this is. This is you know, yeah. can I do the rewriting overnight, meet the deadline and get it and, right and get it right. And, you know, I ran around the house, ran around the garden going, ah! and then, you know, you just, you had to do it. So I did it and got the contract the next day. So great. So, so the random house has obviously bought the book, which is fantastic. So yes, so um, that's pretty easy too. So Simon and Schuster were the first no and then random house. Beverly Fantastic. took it up. So yeah. All right. So um, how long? So how long did it take to get published from that point? Like, what was it? Was it so a this year? was February, um, February of last year. Okay, so just over a year. Just over a year. All right. Yeah. Was there anything that you know, like, that surprised you about the process of of publication? Like, was it what you expected it would be? I don't really know what I expected it to be. Um, right. The um, I, I knew that there would be editing. I'd been told about, you know, oh, God, they make you rewrite the middle 20,000 words or they, you know, they you know, they don't like the way some characters, you know, are behaving or, or whatever. And so I was expecting to get, you know, quite a lot of, of work to do, but it, it wasn't too bad. Um, because you'd done 47 drafts. Because I'd done 47 drafts. <laughs> See, you'd already done the work up front. Okay, yeah. so let's talk about so um, about you know this big question of author platforms, which is something that comes up a lot. Now I know you have a blog, but you at this stage don't have a website or anything no. like that. So did you like was that something that you gave consideration to, and did your publisher have any requirements on the front of of author platforms? Um, yeah, we had a discussion about websites. They felt I didn't need a website. That um, a Facebook page worked. Um, just as well. Um, they were happy for me to just have my own Facebook page. A blog is good. Um, being on Twitter is good. Um, and just, yeah, sort of, you know, doing what you can to raise your profile that way. Okay. Um, yeah, but there wasn't not much more than I was already doing. Okay, great. Um, so I read a blog post recently that said that you that the one thing that really surprised you was how you felt about the actual launch of the book and the publicity requirements of that, like this um, this sudden leap into being a published author. So mm. can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I know that you've been, you know, doing author talks and you've been doing interviews and you've been doing lots of things, which obviously, you know, for most of us is not, not our everyday thing. So suddenly you've gone from here I am with my 47 drafts of my computer and now you're, you know, Jennifer Smart author. Yes. <laughs> which still sounds very weird. Yes. Um, 
Yeah. Look, it, it's um, it's like you, you, it's coming, going through um, a completely different door. And you know, yes, I've worked in the media, but I was never on camera. Um, I've always been very happy to be behind the scenes, and I'm not a real spotlight kind of person. Um, so that that's that was hard to get used to. Um, having people want to talk to me and, um, you know, having radio interviews and and having to be up straight away and get into the interview straight away and you might only have two minutes and you have to um, say something that's witty and bright because that's the way the book's promoted so you can't go on into your radio interview as this really dour, miserable, haven't had my coffee yet, um, gee, I'm normally in bed 20 minutes ago. <laughs> you know, what am I doing here? So, yes, I, I did in this post say I kind of create created a little persona. It's, it's just like a performance switch, I think. So, so you channeled your inner perky person, did you? I and, channeled and found her. My, my inner, yes, my inner publicity-seeking person and that's right. So, um, so and, do you, you think know, the creation – the creation of that persona is a is a good thing. Like you, you kind of like you know that you've got to perform, so to speak. So you flick that switch, and there you are, and then you turn it off and go back to being your dour, miserable, coffee loving self. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Okay, so are you working on a new book at the moment? Well, I am, and that I suppose is the other big thing about once you become published. Um, you know, it's a whole different ball game. Um, I had a conversation only a couple of weeks ago with my publisher and and they've said, fabulous, wonderful, so book two. Um, we don't want you to lose your March publication spot. So that means we need the manuscript by the end of August. That's this year. And and where are you at with your second book? <laughs> Just out of case, yes, Beverly's listening. It's going swimmingly well, Beverly. <laughs> Fabulous. Right. Lovely. That's good. A lot of work to do, but, you know, I know where I'm heading with it. And she's given me kind of bite-sized chunks to sort of little deadlines along the way to meet, which is fantastic. All right. So what then, in summing up, uh, would you say are the three biggest lessons you've learned from writing and publishing your first book? Okay. Well, deadlines, deadlines, deadlines. If you can't meet your deadlines, then don't bother going down this path um you've got some leeway but they're so important and there's so many people relying on you to deliver when you say you're going to deliver um so i was always made every single um deadline and, and there are a lot of them aren't there that's the there other thing are there are a lot of, of deadlines yeah yeah because it's not just one edit process you have several along the way and you you have all these different um deadlines that you've got to meet so um yes so just be right on top of that um also um Pamela Freeman I did a course with her at um the Australian Writers Centre and she actually said you will only be as good a writer as the number of drafts you're prepared to do right so which is why I ended up doing 47 you must be amazing so (laughs) well I you know I don't know I reckon I could still you know go 107 and I'd still never reach the heights that you would want to aspire to but anyway um um so that's two just keep rewriting um 
Oh, and, you know, try and enjoy some of it. You know, it's really hard along the way to maybe sit back and enjoy it. And I guess, you know, there's lots of little moments that you can actually take in. So when you open that package and your very first copy falls out and it's just you and your book, that's amazing. That would be amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. And good luck with all that perky, you know, interviewing. (laughs) And uh, we look forward to, you know, seeing how you go with that August deadline. Oh, Alison, thank you so much. Yes, I'm just going to go back and pick up my pencil and paper right now. Okay. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Great interview, Al. Yeah, it was great, wasn't it? It was really interesting to have a chat to her. Now, I I have to say, though, that one of the interesting things that I did take out of that interview was the fact that um, Jennifer's publisher suggested that she didn't need a website, that she uh, an author website, that she should um, focus on Facebook and things like that. Confounding. Well, it is confounding, but it's not. You know, they're not Pat Malone, shall we say? There, because (laughs) at the end of the day, a lot of publishers um, apparently are not are not sort of looking at author websites as a great investment of time or money from the author's perspective. And um, Jane Friedman, who is uh, writes regularly and prolifically and incredibly well on writing, reading and publishing in the digital age on her blog, she wrote a piece towards the end of last year called Why Don't Publishers Believe in Author Websites? And it was a hugely controversial piece and it you know that it's worth having a look at because she talks about why they don't believe websites are effective and again it comes down to the time mostly the time sink that a website or a blog or something can be um, and they're saying that you know they see better results from from uh, social engagement such as Facebook or Twitter which may demand less of the author um, so I it's look I suggest that everybody have a read of that and then follow some of the links in it because there's some there are some other um other related articles to that. But what do you think about that, Val? Because to me, an author website, well, obviously from my perspective, it's important because it's my territory and it's my real estate and I get to put on it whatever I want. Um, I don't think I would want an author website that was run by my publisher necessarily. Mm. But what, I mean, what are your thoughts on it? I would like to say that the publishers that think that you don't need an author website are quite simply wrong Ooh, and, uh, <laughs> and short-sighted. And if they are giving people, authors, that advice, that is to their detriment, um, to the author's detriment. I think that it is so easy to put up a website, even a basic one. It doesn't have to have bells and whistles. It doesn't even have to be a blog. It needs to be something that you, the author, owns that will have your contact information and potentially point you to your Facebook page or your Twitter or whatever, but I don't think you should rely on your engagement on rented land. You need to build your own platform, your own hub, and honestly, you can put up an author website in minutes these days, literally minutes, you know, by using all the, some of the free tools out there, whether that's Blogger or Squarespace or whatever, and um, it's it, it drives me bonkers to hear publishers say that authors should rely on, you know, the the author page on their own website because what if you change publishers you won't have all of your books on you know found in the, on the same page because one publisher isn't going to feature the books that are being yeah. published by another publisher yeah. so 
I think that you don't necessarily have to have a comprehensive website or even if you're averse to blogging, you don't even necessarily have to have that. But at the very, very least, basic minimum requirement, have your own website and don't listen to the publishers who are telling you not to have one. No, I like it's I, I yeah, I, I, ten, I tend to agree with you. Like I, I, as you say, it's such a simple thing to do these days. You don't have to do a, a million different things on your website. You can just have something there that just, as you say, shows you books and tells people where to find you. Exactly. And I think at the end of the day, that's what people are looking for. And you, what, what, what I think you want is if you type your name into Google, mm. you want your thing, your real estate, to come up first. Absolutely. The thing that you control. And that's, I think that's basic. That's, yeah, I think that's the only advice I can give really at this point. So now that I'll get off my high horse. Yeah, I was um, <laughs> going to say you really saddled up there. <laughs> I just want to talk something about uh, something a bit more fun that I discovered. It's called the Hemingway app. So this is a little app that um, it's designed to make your writing bold and clear. And it's meant to highlight long sentences and tell you if a particular sentence is too dense or complicated. And, you know, it'll show you where there are adverbs because, you know, you're kind of not meant to put too many adverbs um, in, in your in your writing and uh, it's, it oh, will also adverbs. show your your passive where you're using passive voice because you know we're always taught to um, write in more, more so in active voice um, and and it does this in a whole range of different colors so that it's very easy <laughs> but um, I, I mean I think it's a really great idea and I think it's great to have a play um, and for it to point you in the right directions but I do actually think that you know, acquiring the skills and understanding how to do it yourself and being your own oh, editor yeah. is actually a far more valuable tool and that we shouldn't rely on apps like this. But it is a cute app, so I just wanted to share it with everyone. It is a cute app. But the one one of the things I wanted to bring up this week um, for our working writers tip, I'm not sure whether you experienced this or not, is um, when it comes to print publications, because obviously I've been an editor of a number of print publications, and it sometimes astounds me the number of people who would submit articles with footnotes. Now, footnotes is some, certainly something that we meant to do in academic writing, we did at university, but you never see the Sydney Morning Herald or The Age or The West Australian or The New York times um uh, pepper you know break up their their beautifully um seamless feature with all of these little footnotes do you no so do you, is that something that you experience do you come across some um, people putting way too many footnotes when they're actually meant to attribute within the actual article um, look, the only I can honestly say that this has recently come up for me only a couple of times, and it's been with um, students when I've been working with students from the from the writer centre. Mm-hmm. Um, I have never done it myself. I'm, I, the only reason that I do footnotes is if I'm working um, on a Wikipedia style article, which mm-hmm. I often get asked for, for for websites and things like that. So those really information heavy articles, and they want them footnoted because they want to see where the source of the information comes from. Because of course, there's so much information on the internet, and so so little of it is credible that, you know, you need to make sure that you're using credible sources for everything. Um, so, yeah, from that perspective, yes, but I, I haven't used a footnote since I wrote a university essay, yeah. I can honestly say, except I, for the Wikipedia stuff. I think it's been ingrained in us from university because one of the things that we do teach our students at the Writer Centre is they come in with this preconceived idea that they need to footnote, but when you're writing for print publications, you certainly need the source in your notes, in your files, but when you're actually writing the copy for the article, you need to 
attribute appropriately within the within sentence. the text, yes, yeah. so that the author, so that the reader gets the information straight away in a readable and accessible form, which is the whole point of a feature article. <laughs> Absolutely. So this brings us to the end of our podcast this week. What are you up to until we next chat? Uh, I'm just going to be doing more of the same, a lot of thinking, a bit of writing. Um, <laughs> yes, a lot of thinking and probably just breaking up a few fights because apparently that is my new role in life while the school holidays are on. Um, what about you? Uh, well, I'll be busy recruiting and wading through lots of, of applications. So um, that should be fun. Um, and just a tip for everyone, if you're going to apply to a writer's centre, make sure that your spelling and punctuation is oh, fabulous. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Don't worry too much about adverbs, though. They'll be right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So um, you'll find us at writerscentre.com.au. We would love to um, see a review. If you have a moment to um, review this podcast on iTunes, we'd be really grateful. And where can we find you, Alison? Uh, You will find me at alisontate.com. Wonderful. And um, that's all from us this week. See you next time. Where can we find you? Oh, yes, me. <laughs> You're still on your high horse. That's your <laughs> exactly. The air is rare up there. <laughs> I'm at ValerieKoo.com and if you want to contact us, uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you'd like us to cover a particular uh, topic, uh, email us at podcast at writerscentre.com.au. See you next time. Bye. Bye.